Welcome back to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I have the real pleasure to speak with one of the authors of Anxious Politics, Democratic Citizenship in a Threatening World. The book is published in 2015 by Cambridge University Press. Today I have on the phone Shana Kushner-Gadarian to talk about the work. Shana, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Yes, such a pleasure, such a timely book. Um, maybe before we get started, you can tell us just a little bit about yourself and also your co-author. Sure. Um, I'm an assistant professor of um, political science at the Maxwell School at Syracuse University. Um, my co-author on the book is Bethany Albertson. She's an assistant professor of government at University of Texas, Austin. And, and how did you two come to write the book together? You sort of talk, talk about this a little bit in the sure. book. What's the what's the history of the, the collaboration here? So I was a graduate student at Princeton and um, Bethany was a visitor at Princeton at the Center for the Study of Democratic Politics when she was finishing up graduate school. Um, we both have interests in political psychology and political communication and how the American public thinks about um issues like immigration, and she studies religion as well, and I study things like attitudes about terrorism, and um, we kind of hit it off um, that year, and she was going off to take a faculty position at University of Washington in Seattle, and I was saying I had another couple of years in graduate school, and we wanted to stay in touch, so I said, well, you know, we should work on a project together, so we started to work on a project about the uh, about immigration attitudes and how they're affected by Things like how um, anxious people are about um, new immigrants, about immigrants taking jobs, things like that. So we started off with one paper um, and that turned into and we're both experimentalists. So we ran several experiments and there was lots of really interesting things going on in the ways in which Americans were thinking about immigration policy. And we thought, oh, well, there's probably some more here. And we wrote another paper and we revised this first paper and then basically, you know, yada, yada, yada in the kind of Seinfeld lingo, and seven Mm -hmm. years later, we have a book. Um, There there were many articles, many presentations, but it all kind of started off because we had some mutual interest, and we wanted to keep in touch, and um, it has been a very fruitful um, co-author relationship ever since then. Yeah, and and resulted in a very uh, interesting book that we're talking about today. So we read a a lot about political emotion in the non-academic coverage of politics, but much less so in the world of research about politics. So so is it the case that political scientists have been hesitant or resistant to examine emotion and measures of anxiety as they relate to political behavior? Is that, is that accurate? I think um, I think you see some different phases of the study of emotion. So I think, you know, you American political philosophy talking about emotion, right? I mean, you're looking at the Federalist Papers and some concerns about the emotion of crowds and the emotion of, of regular citizens. Um, and whenever, and even if you go back to Aristotle, right, we have, there is a, um, some concern about the role of emotion as kind of undercutting reason in um, general political philosophy and, and, and political philosophy in the U.S. I think that kind of encapsulation of emotion as a bad part of Democracy goes, you know, fairly far into our political science. And then you have a kind of turn toward more cognitive processes, um, the kind of behavioral movement that that starts in the 1960s in both psychology and political science kind of turns more to 
rationality and the ways in which incentives matter for the for how people form opinions and how they act in politics. But at the same time, you still have, particularly after World War II, I think you have a lot of concern about the ways in which emotion and, and personalities like the authoritarian personality matter for the ways in which people do very bad things to each other in politics, including war and torture. And I think there is this, again, kind of uh, there's an attention to emotion um, in that work um, in psychology. And, and it's competing with this work on rationality. And again, it's not seen as particularly positive in the ways in which we conceive of the way citizens should act. And I think that it that started to change. Um, there's, uh, you know, in the maybe the early 1980s, there's some really interesting work done by um, Abelson, who's a psychologist, Don Kinder at University of Michigan, Pam Conover. There's a kind of a starting to be more of a recognition that emotion is not only something that might undercut rationality. It may, in fact, um, exists at the same time as rationality. It is a part of the human experience and not, and as Kinder says in kind of a, a piece about emotion um, at this time, you know, nothing that is so a part of um, human experience can really be all that bad um, all the time. And so there is a, a, a turn toward thinking about emotion in a variety of different ways and that again emotion might be not necessarily something that only undercuts the way citizens should act and and there's a big turning point i think in the late 90s early 2000s in part due to the work of george marcus and um russell newman and michael McEwen in thinking about um anxiety and and enthusiasm and those are the emotions that they talk about thinking about how we measure them thinking about um, how they may actually make citizens better. Um, they may get people interested in politics. Um, and, and so that's probably a longer answer than you were looking for. Um, but I think that kind of turning point in the, the late 90s is, is kind of spawns a huge, well, you know, maybe not in comparison to other literatures, but a larger literature and Ted Brader and Nick Valentino. And there's lots of people who are now writing on it, but it's still a kind of tricky thing to think about what emotion is, how we measure it, how we induce it. Um, but I think there's more of a recognition right in the last two decades or so that emotion is a part of politics and nothing that's so a part of it can really be terrible all the time. And we need to figure out when it's helpful for a democracy and when it's not. Right. And that, as you suggest just then, uh, anxiety may lead us to do a lot of non-political things. But your book is about the political activities sure. related to anxiety. So what did you expect someone who feels anxious to do politically? What, what were your expectations about the connections between these emotions you talk about and the various kinds of political acts that we think of as as meaningful? Sure. So we look at three particular outcomes. So there are there's other work um, that looks at the role of anxiety in in vote behavior. Um, we actually we don't look at vote behavior particularly. We're we're most interested in how anxiety influences um, the ways in which um, Americans learn about politics, who they trust in times of crisis and their attitudes about policy. So in terms of our expectations, what we expected was that 
anxiety is a very uncomfortable emotion. And part of what drives anxiety is uncertainty about the future. And so to the extent that people are uncertain about the future, what they want to do is feel better. And so what we expect and what we find evidence for is that under conditions of anxiety, um, Americans want to find out information about the source of their anxiety. They want to turn toward leaders who they believe will protect them. And they want policies, again, that they believe will protect them. And it's not always obvious in politics what types of um, policies are actually going to protect us. And so part of what we try and add as political scientists rather than kind of just political psychologists or or the psychological work is thinking about kind of the political dynamics of what it means to be a protective policy and the kind of politics around which policies the public ultimately sees as being protective when multiple policies are being offered. So, so let me, let's, let's get to actually what you, what you did here, sure. which is, which is a series of experiments um, to test these relationships. How did these experiments work? You, you did a series, so you don't have to talk about sure. each and every one each and, you know, but, but maybe you can sort of give us the sort of the, the, the basic research design and maybe tell us about one of them and the, the mechanics of, of how this kind of experiment works. Sure. That's great. Um, so yeah, so the, the book is, um, almost entirely experimental. So we, Bethany and I think a lot about um, the ways in which um, we can scare the American public about different mm-hmm. areas, um, which, as it turns out, um, politicians know how to do. And so we use some of their um, playbook. Um, so we have a couple of different ways that we induce anxiety and we do this. We randomly induce anxiety about policy issues. So. Um, I'll talk through, I'm going to give you kind of an overview of some of the ways in which we do this, and then I'll talk you through one of the experiments. So um, we use a couple of techniques to um, get people to feel anxious about policy. The one, one is what we call our bottom-up manipulation, which is we ask people to become anxious about a policy area just by reflecting on it and writing about it. And this is um this is a technique that we, we have seen and other scholars have seen actually does make people feel emotion, not just anxiety. You can do this with other emotions as well. We randomly assign people to either write about what makes them anxious, say about immigration policy or just to in a control condition, think about immigration. So we're holding immigration content. What we're varying is the emotional content. So that's kind of one way that we can induce anxiety. We use campaign ads. So we will show um, respondents um, two versions of a campaign ad, um, one of which is um, has um, kind of scary music and one of which does not. And the only thing mm-hmm. that varies between them, the message is the same, the images are very similar, but the only thing that matters uh, that differs is kind of emotional music, which we pretest ahead of time. We use newspaper um, and television um, stories that vary kind of the emotional content of those stories based on, again, the visual information or the language that we use. Um, and we do a lot of pretesting to make sure that what we think is actually causing emotion and anxiety particularly is. Okay, so those are kind of the basic techniques that we use. So um, the mechanics of it are so um, I'll talk you through our one of our first immigration um, studies, which was looking at the ways in which people who are anxious about immigration search for information. 
So we randomly assign you, you come, you're a um, respondent. We've done this both in the lab and um, with online representative samples. We randomly assign you to either kind of feel anxious about immigration. That is, you're going to write about immigration and what makes you worried, or you're going to just tell us something about immigration. And, and then we're going to ask you some questions about your emotion. So we make sure that this technique actually worked. And then in this particular study, we were interested in the ways in which people search for information. So we um, created an information environment. That is, we um, created something that looked a little bit like a news website. It was pretty pared down, but it's a similar kind of setup to a news website um, where we had six headlines um, and the stories were divided such that um, four of the stories were about immigration. Two of the stories were not. And of the immigration stories, two of them had threatening headlines, things like immigrants are uh, raised the crime rate. And two of them had more neutral headlines, which were things like um, immigration is good for the country or my, my family is a family of immigrants. So we were interested in the ways in which people search for information under conditions of anxiety. So in this particular study, we asked people, to, we said, there are some stories here um, and you're welcome to read some of them and we'll ask you some questions later. And we just we just recorded which stories people read in what order. And then we asked them some questions about it later, like which stories do you remember of what you read and what do you think about those stories? So, okay. Go ahead. Yeah, go, no, no. I, because I think that just the the way this is is designed is so interesting, and I think uh, for people don't you know do a lot of experiments. Just the the ways in which you're able to induce these anxious feelings and then measure them is really interesting. So you you, you set up a, a typical ex, this experiment with a treatment group and a control group, and and what do you find about their their information seeking behavior for those that are in the anxious group and those that that are not. Sure. So there are these really interesting differences. One, um, people who are in the anxious group are more likely to seek out immigration stories than people in the control group. Um, this is what we would expect under conditions of anxiety again, right? Anxiety makes us feel uncertain. And so in one way to cope with that is to find more information about what is making you anxious. Okay. So we find that the immigration stories are more attractive to people in the, um, the, the anxiety condition. But what's really interesting actually about this study is not only are people, um, anxious respondents, more likely to seek out immigration stories, what they're attracted to and what they remember are actually the threatening stories about immigration. They're more attracted to stories that say things like immigrants are ruining the country than stories that are more neutral or more positive about immigration. So, Anxiety um, in, makes people more likely, again, to um, be attracted to these stories that portray immigration in a kind of in a negative light. Um, and one of the consequences of that is that to the extent that elites are can make people feel anxious about immigration or any policy, what that might do is down the line bias the types of information that they will seek out, remember, and then agree with in forming their political attitudes. Let me follow this up because I think this is just so interesting about the sort of the, the practical consequences of what you found. Um, does, do your findings suggest that negative advertisements 
may have some beneficial effects on political behavior in that they will induce um, um, a more more active engagement in politics than than aver- uh, political advertisements that are that are not going to induce anxiety. Maybe you could just talk about sort of in practical terms some of the things that this means. Um, yeah, I think that's exactly um, one of the consequent one of the takeaways is that um, again. We want to think about the kinds of things that we want from citizens, right? And one of the things that we think of as that good as citizens do is that they are attentive to politics. Um, and one of the consequences of anxiety is to actually make people more attentive to politics. Now, you want to counter that with thinking about, well, do we want citizens who are just attentive to the most threatening information well, there's there's conditions under which we might think that's really important, right? So uh, we can think of an example of a natural disaster. We want people under conditions of a natural disaster to pay attention to that which is um, both going to have a higher probability of actually hurting them and to um, take the information that then they can use to protect themselves and their families. Under lots of other conditions, it's actually more questionable whether or not a bias toward threatening information is um, good for democratic discourse or it's good for the ways in which people form their attitudes. Um, So, yes, we think one of the beneficial things about anxiety is it gets people engaged in politics, but it gets them engaged in a very particular kind of way. And there's lots of circumstances that we might think of of that actually um, may not benefit democracy as a whole if people are engaged in this very particular way of this kind of biased information seeking. Um, One of the things I want to point out um, that was really interesting in thinking about all of our experiments as a whole is that there are some differences in the kinds of manipulations, the consequences for um, the ways in which people act. So you brought up campaign ads. We actually find that um, people who are made anxious via are kind of bottom-up manipulations where they create their own anxiety are more likely to set aside their partisanship when they form their political attitudes and think about who to trust than when we use something like a campaign ad. So when people see a campaign ad that tries to make them anxious about a policy that is kind of from the other party, say, they're more likely to what we call buffer against that anxiety, either decide they're not going to feel anxious. They kind of put up blinders to feeling anxious or they're not going to respond in the way that the ad wants them to respond. Um, So we have a couple of examples of this. One is in immigration. Um, We had one study where we had an oversample. We had equal numbers of, Latino respondents, African-American respondents, and white respondents. And um, if you use a message that it tells Latinos to feel anxious about immigration policy, that's a much harder sell um, in terms of getting Latinos to feel anxious, right? It's easier to make whites feel anxious about that. Um, We also have other examples where we find that people's partisan identities help them filter when the message is more persuasive than um, about whether they should feel anxious and whether or not they should respond to that anxiety, than when we have something that is not on its face 
supposed to be persuasive, like a newspaper story or this bottom up manipulation. Yeah, it's, it's so very interesting. And the, the book, uh, I think there's there's so much that, that can help us make sense of the current campaign, uh, presidential campaign that, that we are in the midst of. Um, in the interest of that, in the interest of your next project, <laughs> are you doing experiments in, in the context of the, the campaign that we're looking at? Maybe there's something we can look forward to in, in what you're working on right now. So can you tip your hand to, to something that's going on that's not going to uh, do any harm to the, the, the method? No. Um, so Beth and I actually don't have anything right now in terms of this election cycle, although um, perhaps in the fall we'll um, we will. I actually think this election, this is kind of, off, you know, off the the um, diagonal of what we've done. I actually think this election cycle feels a lot more like an election cycle that is about anger than is about anxiety. So I think there are anxieties that people have. And I have a separate project going right now with some um international collaborators looking at um, cross-national responses to the uh, to terrorism and particularly the anxiety about terrorism that I think people had right after Paris and I think kind of continues at a low level right now. Um, so I think there is that kind of anxiety right now. There's some anxiety over national security issues. Um, but this this election cycle feels to me a lot like anger anger at the current state of politics, anger at the parties, anger at the status quo. Um, and I think that um, that's actually not an area that we've done a lot of work on. We've kind of focused on this one emotion, um, but that has anger has different consequences. And I think we're going we're seeing that play out. Um, anger is about blame and punishment, whereas anxiety is about uncertainty and protection. And so I think the way I interpret a lot of the language that you see around 2016 and a lot of the and we haven't seen voting yet, but we'll see um, a lot of the support for both Donald Trump and um, and Bernie Sanders. I see in in similar ways that there's a lot of anger underlying those um, that support. I mean, I think it's some of the support for the Tea Party candidates is is that as well um, about people feeling frustrated and angry about the ways in which they see government and the state failing them. Um, I guess that's not, uh, that's not exactly what you asked, but I, I see that there, there is some anxiety, but I, I interpret this election cycle as being much more about the ways in which people are kind of mad and, and um, attempting to blow up the system essentially. Yeah, no, it's, it's, um, uh, it is a great answer to the to to the question. Um, the book "Anxious Politics: Democratic Citizenship in a Threatening World," published by Cambridge University Press. Uh, the authors Bethany Albertson and uh, Shaden Gadarian. Um, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate sure, it. Thank you.